Hi guys, just a fair warning here. The content in this episode is not for young listeners. Ann Byler went through a series of traumatic and challenging circumstances in her early years that were critical to cover as they impacted her attitude on work and propelled her to start the international franchise, Auntie Anne's. I have to ask, how did you guys keep the recipe top secret at that time? Because you know you had to. Yes, we knew. We knew we had to. Immediately, we really didn't realize that because we weren't planning on a big company. At that point, it was just my one store. Well, that year, we did another store. And then the next year, we did 10 stores. That year, 1989, my husband said, hun, I don't know if that's a word, but we need to secretize the recipe. From Lux Monday, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong, and with me today is the founder of the world-famous soft pretzel chain, Auntie Anne's. You've probably seen a store at the local mall because today there's about 1,800 locations worldwide. And fans describe the pretzels like this. It's pretty fantastic. Really amazing. Delicious. Yum. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Uh, my name is Ann Byler, and I am the founder of Auntie Anne's Soft Pretzels. I can't believe you're the founder of Auntie Anne's Pretzel and that you're an actual person because it was such an epic pretzel. I thought it was either fictitious or this dear Auntie Anne wasn't around anymore. <laughs> but it looks like you're alive and well. I, I truly am alive and well, and I'm more alive and well today than I have ever been in my entire life. Anne wasn't always in a good place and able to speak with such freedom from the baggage of her past. But before we get into her story, I wanted you to think with me about the challenges you're going through that might be hindering your career growth. Could it be not having the money you need to get started? Finding the right partner, getting the right idea, or the difficulties of perfecting your product? Or do you feel insecure because you feel you lack the skills, education, social upbringing, or could it be even a bit deeper than that? Did something shocking or unfair happen to you that you can't imagine getting out of? For Anne, she never could have imagined the tragedy and trauma that would come her way. Anne grew up in a simple and sheltered home in small town Pennsylvania. Born in 1949, she was the third of eight children. She says at one point her parents were called Old Order Amish which means they only farmed with a horse and buggy because the culture would reject using any electricity or technology, even if they were available. Anne says when she was three years old, her dad made a decision that would change their family life on the farm. My mom and dad left the old order Amish, which means we looked like the Amish because Amish people have a certain dress that everybody dresses the same way. So going into the black car Amish simply meant that uh, we could have a car, but it had to be black. And my dad was able to farm with a tractor. Could you tell me about your childhood? Anyone that grew up on a farm, whether you're Amish or not, knows what it's like to work very hard. And so all eight of us kids really had our assigned jobs. And my mom always said that I wasn't as well as the rest of the kids. So I guess I was a little sickly. So I worked in the kitchen with my mom. She taught me how to bake and how to cook. So I really was the indoor kid. And while the rest of the kids worked on the farm and did the yard work and did the gardening. Can you tell me what education was like in your community? So when I went to school, it was really all about reading, 
writing and arithmetic. <laughs> and I loved school. And I really enjoyed learning. Growing up in Black Car Amish meant that we went through the eighth grade. And then at that point, you quit going to school because there's really not a high school to go to in that culture. And you help your mom and dad on the farm. So what do you remember what your ambitions were growing up? My dream in life was to have my own family to do exactly what mom and dad did. I didn't think about having a career. As a little girl, I asked God for a really good man. I wanted a tall, dark, and handsome guy because my dad was kind of short and chubby. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I met Jonas the very first time, my heart just like started beating. Like, oh my gosh, this guy is really handsome. He was an Amish guy that knew how to work, loved God, wanted a family. And we met at a youth back in the days in our church. And, and, and tell me about your faith at this time. Three entities that influenced my life. One was my mom and dad taught me to love God and keep his commandments. My Christian school taught me to love God and keep his commandments. And my church taught me to love God and keep his commandments. So I, I look at that, Grace, and I said a very, very strong foundation uh, when it comes to my faith. And not all of it was correct. I believe that life is good and God is harsh. It seems like you're educated in God from Absolutely. your family about who God was. And to you, life was good and God was good. Yes. As long as you were good. Uh, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Great way to say it. So you married Jonas when you were 19 and he was 21. What was he doing for a living? When you're Amish at 16 years old, your dad takes you aside and says, we're going to go buy you a horse and a carriage. So at that time, Jonas knew he did not want a horse and buggy. He said, I didn't want horses. I wanted something with horsepower. So the day that he told his dad that he doesn't want a horse and buggy, his dad said to him, then you're going to have to go buy your own car. And uh, Jonas Byler, I went to a junkyard. And he found a 1950s Chevy and he fixed that car up and he became a body man. That's how we made a living. Anne was living her Amish girl dream when she married her handsome husband, Jonas. By now, they were both part of the Mennonite church community and they got involved in a small church plant. It grew from 11 to 1000 people in three years. Things were going well. Anne became a young mom of two girls. She enjoyed living on the farm and maintaining the home, just like her parents did. When Anne was 26 years old, an incident on the farm would take her life on a downward spiral. On September 8, 1975, Anne looked on as her eager 19-month-old Angie walked over to Grandma's, as she usually did, but didn't foresee what would happen next. Angie walked out of our front door on her way to my mom's house, which was a few hundred feet from my place. We were very close to each other, living on the same farm. But between my house and my mom's house, my dad uh, had a cement stone siding business. And my sister would haul sand and use a tractor of, so, of some sort. And that morning she was hauling sand on this little bobcat and she didn't see Angie behind her and... When she went to back up and then turned it to go forward, she saw Angie in the front of the bobcat and realized that she'd run over her. And, um, you know, when I say that, I as I say that, it comes back to me. I remember the, the unbelievable, I, I just could not believe that this happened. And we picked her up and I carried her to the emergency room and in shock and I'll never forget that moment when we realized that 
the doctor pronounced her dead and I pulled the little white sheet up over her and I'd never experienced anything close to that. And you know, what we do in those moments, you just, all of us ask God why. So because I believed that I was a good girl and that God was harsh, I went from that place of uh, why God to blaming God. What types of things came to your mind as, as a mother, as a wife? Uh, that, that particular morning that I had, I really didn't take the time to dress her properly. She was still in her nightie. I, I wanted to call her back to change her diaper and put her dress on. But that morning, I watched her go around the little bend, and I decided I'll call mom and tell my mom she's on the way. Well, obviously, that became my greatest guilt. And after she died, I, I could not stop thinking about the fact if I would have called her back, uh, then she'd still be with me. So the guilt of that became huge. So as Angie made her ascent into heaven, I began my descent into a world of pain and spiritual confusion that I knew nothing about. What started happening in your life and how did you try to get out of it? Um, still going to church, still staying with my husband, still pretending like nothing ever changed in my life. The guilt and felt at home made her feel like she needed to turn to church to help her find God in the midst of her grief and confusion. But when she sought a well-respected pastor in her community for counsel, he didn't turn out to be very helpful. And after five months of um, depression and the darkness and confusion, I went to see my pastor. And when I went to his office, was there for about an hour and finally able to just pour out my heart. And before I left his office, he took advantage of me uh, physically. And um, my grief over Angie was nothing compared to the despair and the darkness and the shame and the guilt of the seven years then of abuse that I lived with uh, from my pastor. Uh, but it's all because I kept a secret, Grace. I kept that secret for seven long years. Anne was a victim of spiritual and sexual abuse from her pastor, but at that time could only identify that she was in a confusing and secret relationship. She thought she was having an affair with her pastor because that's what he told her. The truth was the pastor was also sexually abusing Anne's two sisters and other women in the church, and it would be later revealed that he had molested Anne's oldest daughter. Anne shares more details in her book, Secret Lies Within, how she felt forced to stay in that abusive relationship and how the depression took a toll on her body. The one secret that I kept nearly killed me. I mean, I weighed 92 pounds. I was so confused. I was pretending. Life was kind of like I'm out in the middle of the ocean, trying to stay alive, keeping my head above the waves, uh, above it all, just barely surviving. At one point, I thought that uh, there was nothing left for me to live for. What was the turning point that gave you the courage to open up and tell your husband the truth? I was praying one day and the Lord just uh, was very clear with me. I want you to get up off your knees, stop praying and go tell your husband about what's what's happening in your life. I argued with God. I cried. I wept. I fought. I'm like, I can't, I cannot tell Jonas what I'm doing, what, what's happening in my life. I can't tell him. But somehow, Holy Spirit within me gave me the courage to get up and get in my little blue pickup truck and drive to Jonas's body shop 
and make a very, very simple, it was only three lines. All I could say to him was, "Hun, I'm sorry. I know that you know about the women in the church. Well, I'm one of those women and I'm a sorry person. That's all I said. And I, there were no hugs, there were no tears. I didn't ask him to forgive me. I was a shell. There was nothing left inside of me. And I walked away before he had any time to answer. And, and what did Jonah say to you? But he said, just promise me one thing. And I began to weep at that point. I said, you know, I can't keep promises. I don't know if I can promise you anything. I've broken every promise. And he said, but promise me that you won't leave a note on the dresser in the middle of the night and, and leave. And I said, so if you need to leave our home, then I'll, I'll help you find a house. I'll, I'll help you pack your bags. But you, you have to know you have to take the girls with you because they need you. They need their mom. Well, you will never understand the, the power in that statement. It gave me hope, like a spark ignited in my spirit. Like, wow, he still believes in me. After Anne finally made the powerful confession to Jonas in 1982, they started a long and difficult path to mend their marriage. They went to counseling sessions, and out of that experience, Jonas wanted to change his career. Anne says, Jonas's desire went from fixing cars to fixing people's hearts. My husband then went to study counseling. He was so intrigued with human behavior, and so he, he did. He studied a psychology for about six years. So my husband is dyslexic and uh, reading is very difficult for him, but he got a degree in a, on a layman's level to be able to do counseling in our church, in our home, in our community. And he began to do that. And he did it from morning to night, five days a week. And then he would work one day for his dad, making about $100 a day. And I remember saying, Hun, you know, we're really not getting, we're not putting any money in our bank account at $100 a week. We're barely making it. I really would like to just go to work and support you so that you can, so that you can do what you love to do, which is counseling. So I got a job at a farmer's market. I was making $250 a week and he had given me a car to use. So it was like, wow, I was, I was really doing well in, the, in that day. What types of things did you kind of start doing that you realized you were good at? I began making soft pretzels. And I realized within a few months that I became a manager of someone else's store. And I realized in a few months that I loved to manage. And this management was just building my confidence about like, wow, I can do this. I can do more than be a mom. My kids were older now and I loved being in business. It was fun. Out of wanting to help Jonas kickstart his passion in counseling, Anne started working to support the family in her late 30s. She surprisingly became really good at managing the small store. Her boss began to rely on her for record keeping and managing a small team of 10 employees. He also incentivized her with performance and Christmas bonuses. She says she knew nothing about because she never worked in that environment. Let's take a break. And when we're back, we'll get into how she started her own business. Hey guys, Horst Schultze is known as a corporate hotelier. But in recent years, he started to write down the important values and stories that have impacted his life. Horst told me how a friendship with Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, encouraged him to write excellence wins. I became good friends with him and he urged me and he said, what you have done, you must share with others. In fact, he called me then one time, said, Horst, I'm disappointed you have never read a book yet. You must write that book. And soon later, Stephen died. That's when I started to put it together. 
So tell me about this book, Excellence Wins. I tried to write it in a way so that young people wouldn't put a book away, that I would write stories about it so it is understood. Work becomes common sense. I've read the book and I loved it. What nuggets of wisdom are in this book that you wish you knew starting off your career? One of the most important things that I am in charge, it's not my feelings. I'm the master of my feelings in everything. I gave as an example that I'm in love with my wife. It's a decision, it's not a feeling. I feel of it because of my decision. I don't let the feeling control my decisions. My young friend, you're defining yourself by what you do every day. What do you want to define yourself as? It's up to you, make the right decisions and you will be what you want to be. That's great. And Excellence Wins is the perfect name for who you are, Port Stolze. Excellence Wins is a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise. It's available today in print, digital, and audio formats. Hope you'll give it a read to encourage your work week. Welcome back. Now let's get into the story of how Anne started Auntie Anne's in 1988. She was 39 years old. You you had this mentality that uh, you just wanted to be a wife, you wanted to be married, to have kids, and suddenly you're becoming the breadwinner for your family. What made you want to do more? Um, I would never have pursued anything more. I, I loved what I was doing, but somebody came to me and just said to me, you really need to think about buying your own store. And I laughed at them. I'm like, I don't, I'm good. I, I don't, I don't need my own store. I'm, I'm doing well here. And this lady actually persisted to the point where she said, here, here's the phone number of the people that want to sell their store in downtown, the one close to our house. And I said, well, okay, I'll give them a call. But we had no money. We honestly, we had no money in the bank. So my mentality at that point was, I can't afford a store because sometimes a farmer's market would sell as high as anywhere from 50000 to $250,000 for one little uh, 12 by 20 little store in a market because they were very lucrative. And so anyway, she said, here, here's the number, call them. And uh, so I did out of just kind of curiosity, like, okay. And so when I called them, uh, I asked them, so how much do you want for your store, the Downingtown market? And they said, we want $6,000. And my jaw dropped. So I whispered to my husband as I'm on the phone, I, I mouthed to him, they only want $6,000 for the store. And I said, I think I'm just going to tell them I want it. And he said, yes, do. So so I get back on the phone to tell them, I said, you know what, we'll, we'll have a check there. Uh, we'll bring a check by tomorrow. That was the way I bought that store. Never saw it, but something inside of me. And I told my husband after I hung up, I said, I don't need to pray about this. I just know this is what God wants us to do. And he said, well, then go for it. Anne knew Jonas's dad, also known as Pop, could probably lend them the money. At that point, she had never asked to borrow money in her life. She says her palms were sweaty when she took the check from Pop to take it over to the store owner. The very same day she bought the store was the first time she walked in. When we got to the store, it was very dirty. It was very sloppy. There was no flow in the store. And, and when I got there, I realized that they were making pretzels as well. And I'm like, huh, I didn't buy it because it was a pretzel shop because they had pizza, pretzel, lemonade, ice cream, a few, you know, snack foods. And so when we got there, I knew what a store, how it should flow because of the store I was at before. So we just kind of um, 
we remodeled. Didn't cost us much because I had a brother and my husband that uh, remodeled. It may have cost us a couple hundred dollars to paint and clean up. And in a couple of days, we had that store squeaky clean. The flow of it was perfect. And I was so excited that we were the owners of this little pretzel pizza shop. I couldn't believe that we did this. And then I got scared. Buyer's remorse. <laughs> really? Why? Why is that? The job that was stable. I was making $250 a week and I had my very own car. We started with nothing and $6,000, but I just knew that we could do this somehow. The store itself was making $875 in two days. I, I, I had the numbers figured out in my head that if we do a little more than that, then we can eventually buy our own car. So the very first week, we did more than they had done. They were cash positive from day one. This was Anne opening a store in its original form, selling pizzas, lemonade, ice cream, and pretzels. In fact, she says she was selling more pizzas than the previous owners did because they tasted really good. But for some reason, the pretzels were not that great, and she couldn't figure out why. And I had the recipe that I took with me from the other market, which my boss at that time, he told me I couldn't use them. So I took that recipe to my new store, but my pretzels were not the same. They were, and I couldn't understand it. We just really tinkered with the pretzel, the recipe, the trays, the ovens. We did everything we could think of. And still, it was it was almost kind of white. It was almost it was almost crunchy. It was it just was terrible. So one Friday morning, after about six weeks of really trying to make this work, my husband and I were there alone. And I said to him, "Hun, I am so frustrated with the pretzels. I'm going to take it off the menu and we're just going to do pizza, lemonade and ice cream. And he said, "Hun." Before you give up, because I believe that there's something about these pretzels that I just want to make them really good. And I said, so what are we going to do about it? Anne says because Jonas's mom had a disability, he grew up cooking and baking for his family. Jonas that day went to work on this existing pretzel recipe they had. He added to the ingredients to make the dough, crafted the pretzels and threw them into the oven. For Anne, it's hard to believe what happened when she was ready to throw out the pretzels from the menu. We're watching the dough rise and we realize, wow, the dough feels different. It looks different. So when the pretzel was finally baked, we pulled it out of the oven, dipped it in butter, as we always do. We stood there and ate this pretzel. And we all we could say was like, wow, this is really good. And sure enough, the very first customer, he bought a pretzel and took a bite and held the pretzel and looked at it. And he said, what is this? And I said, oh, it's a sock pretzel. And he said, well, this is nothing like a sock pretzel that I have ever tasted. This is so good. And that response just gave us the, it's kind of like a send off. Like, this is it. So that day, Auntie Anne's pretzel was born. I still remember getting my first Auntie Anne's pretzel in junior high. My sister told me you have to taste the sour cream and onion pretzel. And it literally melted in my mouth. So what you and Jonas came up with was something really good. And I have to ask, how did you guys keep the recipe top secret at that time? Because you know you had to. Yes, we knew we knew we had to. Immediately, we really didn't realize that because we weren't planning on a big company. At that point, it's my one store. Well, that year we did another store and then the next year we did 10 stores. That year, 1989, that my husband said, I don't know if that's a word, but we need to secretize the recipe. Like Coca-Cola did. Yeah, exactly. How did you guys think through that? 
you know, we ended up doing a little mini little manufacturing in our garage and took all of the ingredients. We set up a little assembly line and figured out how to mix. We called them batches so that everyone who got them at their store, all they had to do was add the water and the yeast to them. They eventually did so well with the pretzels that they dropped the other items off the menu. While the story of how they got started is not typical of how most people get started, I wanted to highlight that it worked for them and started this company without a company name. She says it was typical for farmers markets at that time to just sell things without a brand name. Once the pretzels became a hit, she did eventually come to realize that they needed a name for what they were doing. After we had perfected the recipe, that was about six weeks to do. We got slammed. We could not keep up making pretzels. We had to buy more ovens and it was crazy. At one point I'm like, we should, we should name this. We should have a name for their company. So my two sisters and my one friend and I got together and we sat at one of my tables at the market and we wrote down on a napkin, what can we call this? We came up with this whole list of things. And my friend, Emmy, she said to me, Ann, why don't you just call it Auntie Ann's pretzels? Because everybody calls you Auntie Ann anyway. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Kind of like, I wouldn't have said that on my own. I mean, that was, that would have been a little too prideful. Like I name it after me, but her saying that it's just like, it clicked. My first nieces and nephews called me Auntie Anne because Auntie Anne just rolled. Anne would soon realize that she didn't have a business plan for how they would properly scale the company because people started coming in droves to get a taste of the Auntie Anne's pretzel. The business grew from word of mouth alone. They spent no money on advertising. And all of a sudden, they were getting inquiries from people who were willing to set up their own stores to sell the Auntie Anne's pretzels. I read somewhere that in 1988, between two stores, you almost hit $100,000, which is more money you've ever seen in your whole life. From two stores, you said you went to 10. Did you start realizing, oh, we need to buy more stores in these locations? No. No, we never went looking for more stores. <laughs> the product itself, it was the driver. People would taste the pretzel, and there was such a buzz about Auntie Anne's pretzels that people wanted to do their own stores. First 10 were just you know, mostly family and a few friends from our church, actually, that did stores. You know, we were not prepared for even those 10. We didn't have a business model. We didn't have a business plan. We had a little one-page agreement and said that if you want to do Auntie Anne's pretzels, you'll give us an upfront, I called it an upfront fee and a percentage of your of your gross sales. And then we'll help you build the store and we'll train you. And so really it was franchising, but we had no idea that's what it was. You had no idea what you were doing with franchising. How did you hear about it? One of our licensed people came to us and said, "I need. we need to go out for dinner. We need to talk about the business model. And I said, okay. I mean, I was all chipper about it and I was all good to go and no problem. And he said to me, you need to know that you're franchising. And I remember I said to him, no, we're licensing. I don't want to franchise because I somehow I knew franchising was complicated. I knew that McDonald's was franchising. <laughs> I knew that they were all over the world and I knew that was franchising. But I said, we're not franchising. He said, um, yes, you're franchising. It was growing pains for Anne as the business grew so quickly in the first two years and she didn't have much work experience or business know-how. By now, she had her brother Carl on board, who had read a Newsweek article on franchising. So he set up a meeting with his franchising company to confirm that they were in fact franchising and that the licensing agreements they had in place weren't sufficient, which meant they could get fined for not issuing a regulatory document to each franchisee before opening each store. 
At that time, they had about 50 stores. As, as I always did, Jonas and I, we took all these things to the Lord and we gathered our employees together. We talked about it and I said, call every franchisee that we have and tell them about this. We're, we're going to have a meeting and uh, we're going to let them know what we need to do. And we're going to just stop what we're doing, lay the foundation, make the changes that we need to do, call all of the states that we're in. Because in every state, if you're not licensed with the state, you cannot do business there. And we were already in like five states. So we said, call the state officials. And anyway, so we did all of the things that we needed to do to let everyone know what was up. We are now going to be a franchise organization and we're going to do whatever it takes to be above board and do this uh, with integrity. And we're going to do it right. So for six months, we didn't sell any franchises, but we just got our house in order. It was a very, very tough time. But God was with us and we didn't get have any fines and we had no franchisees that left the system that were that upset with us. Thankfully, they got out of an honest mistake. Now the company had a franchising model that would cover the cost and overheads of their business. As they were looking to expand westward to Texas or California, Anne realized that they needed presence for training and distribution. So in 1993, Anne went to the banks asking for a $1.5 million loan. I think there was three banks we went to and they all three said no. And I was devastated. Like, why would they, why did the banks not give us any money? I don't understand. Banks did not want to give us the money because they did not like the contribution columns for you. And I was devastated because I'm thinking, well, they should be happy that we're, that we're in the community. We're giving back to the community. We're blessing people. And so my brother said, so what are we going to do? And I said, well, you know what, if God wants us to expand and he wants us to go into these five regions and he'll provide the money somehow. I had a new employee that just came. She said, I know that you, you're looking for money. Everybody knew that the banks denied us. And so she said, I have a friend that has a lot of money and he loves your pretzels. I bet you he would give you the money that you need. I'm like, really? You think you want So my new employee uh, calls her friend and told him that we need $1.5 million. And he said, well, sure. Tell Ann that I'll meet her tomorrow for coffee. So, so over coffee that day, said, sure, I'll give you $1.5 million, No problem. Said, I'll put the check in the mail tomorrow morning and I'll have an agreement. And all you need to do is sign it and send it back to me when you get the check. So that's how... That's how we got our expansion funding <laughs> from an angel investor. He was a chicken farmer in Lancaster County. It was a God moment. During this time as the, the company was growing, how did you upskill in business? How did you feel like you were able to do that even though you didn't have that education? So I went through a period where I was very intimidated by everybody that knew more than I did, that had more education, that had more business knowledge, that you know, all these things. I felt intimidated and fearful. I focused on what I didn't have and wished it, wished I would have had more. What I didn't have was a formal education, a capital, and a business plan, which everybody says you got to have that, you know, to, to do business. So it was during that time um, that Jonas just said to me at one point, he said, "Hun, stop uh, comparing yourself with everyone. Do you know that God didn't ask anyone else in the world to be Auntie Anne? He only asked you. So apparently, um, you can do this. And I was like, he said, just stop, just stop comparing yourself with everyone and become the best Auntie Anne that you could possibly be. At one point I realized what we did have was a great product, great purpose, and great people. And when you're in business, if you can focus on what you have, uh, that will take you further than what, you, than what you've ever imagined. But if you stay stuck on what you don't have, 
you really will never grow. You always be whining and wishing you had more, but focus on what you have. And that was really great advice because I, I really, I did stop whining. I started thinking about what do I need to do? I just began to read books and I went to, to conferences. I went to training sessions. I went to leadership conferences. I, I just did all of that to, to get better and better at who, who I was. And over time, I really got very comfortable in my skin and I turned into a businesswoman, which uh, surprised me and I loved it. For over 17 years, Anne Byler ran Auntie Anne's like a family. She was founder and president for many years, but best describes herself as a cheerleader with the greatest role of encouraging the right people she put in place to keep going. By 2005, her second cousin, Sam Byler, was running the company and Anne became less involved in decision-making as she transitioned into more of a spokesperson role for the company. By that time, Auntie Anne's had about 900 locations worldwide, an annual sales of $250 million. This was when Anne felt it was a good time to sell her pretzel business. You know, to, to really sell the company was very tough. It was difficult. Uh, it was a very difficult decision, but because Sam was also grew up in the Amish culture, uh, he understood the values, he understood the culture, the mission of the company, and he had been there uh, 17 years and had been had worked in every department of the company. So I felt very good about uh, the company being in his hands. What would you say made you want to sell? Number one, the company had grown so much that I felt like to take it to another level, I did not have the energy, didn't have the, the desire. I just, I felt like we'd taken it to a level that was as far as I wanted to go. But I knew that we were going to go further. That was one reason. And the other reason was, I also feel like it's, it's really important to know when to buy and when to sell and when to stop and when to go. I also believe that in business, even as pastors or any leaders, like sometimes we stay too long. You know, we wear our welcome out and our ideas aren't as crisp. But I felt like it was time the company was doing well. There were no issues that I was struggling with. There was nothing going wrong. We were doing well. We were profitable. But we just felt like God said, it's okay if we want to sell. He's got more for us to do. After Anne sold Auntie Anne's to Sam Byler in 2005, the company continued to grow. Five years later, Sam sold Auntie Anne's to Focus Brands, an affiliate of private equity firm Roark Capital Group, which also owns brands like Cinnabon, Carvel, and Jamba Juice. Today, Auntie Anne's has around 1,800 stores worldwide and annual sales of about $800 million, which means the company had nearly tripled in revenue from when Anne sold the company 15 years ago. Although Auntie Anne's has switched owners, Anne still goes back to speak every once in a while. Just this year, she was with the team. They have a little notebook on the outside. It says, what would Anne do? just such an honor because they understand how we grew the company and if the company is going to keep going in the right direction, they just got to stick with the basics. It's really not that complicated. I had faith in a God who was leading us every step of the way. Yes. And you had a, an amazing husband too, to be by your side. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Anne describes Jonas as a man of few words, but his actions and care took her on this incredible journey to start a pretzel empire. Anne says the biggest difference Jonas made in her life was probably when she was 33, scared and confused after confessing the secret she had kept inside of her. What would you say you felt he did that really helped? It was, it was his spirit. 
And I didn't know for many, many, many months later that after I talked to him, he got on his knees before the Lord. And he also called a counselor. And he said to the counselor, what am I going to do? I mean, my life is, I'm shattered. I don't know what to do. The counselor said, there's a couple of things that you can do. One of your options is you can choose to love your wife as Christ loves you. And Jonas asked him the question, how do I do that? And the counselor responded, said, God will show you how to love your wife as he loves you. You can never tell the story without, without weeping because he said that day, I decided that I'm gonna love you like Christ loves me. I knew that he loved me, even though he didn't say that that day. He never said, I love you, I forgive you. No, let me tell you, it was hard. It was very difficult. And we had a couple of heavy discussions. I mean, I was so broken. One day I said to him, you know, I guess I can't remember what happened, but we were just struggling. And I said to him, do you really think that we can make this work? Or do we need to get a divorce? And my husband crumbled to the floor at that moment. And he said, never, never use the word divorce. We're not going to get a divorce. We're going to work this out. We're going to stay together as a family. God put us together and we're going to stay together. This story isn't just about Ann Byler, but about Ann and Jonas. Jonas didn't give up on Ann when she wanted to give up on herself. And Anne loved Jonas enough to start working so that her husband could pursue his passion of counseling. And when Anne wanted to give up on selling pretzels, Jonas didn't give up and ended up inventing the soft pretzel recipe we all love today. Who is that person, partner, or friend you're going to walk beside to get through the toughest times, but also rejoice with when you do? Jonas could not have done it on his own strength. I hope you'll remember today, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, that you don't need to go at it alone and that we can focus on what we have, like Anne did. This is Grace Wong, bringing you stories that can revive your work week. If you're curious to know more about the abuse Anne Byler went through, make sure you check out her latest book, The Secret Lies Within. I really recommend getting a copy if you've been through any type of that abuse yourself. It'll help to know that you're not alone. You can find the link to her book from our show notes. Hope you have a blessed week. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is edited by me, Shina Lee, and Joshua Huang. Audio mixing by Abel Wilson and Joshua Huang. If you'd like to hear more from us, sign up for our newsletter on the Faith Collides website. We'll be sending bonus content on how Anne started a journey to become an author.